If you have your Bible, then I will invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. Acts chapter 4, I will begin by reading from verse 23. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Some of you may know that I enjoy watching movies, and I said it many times before, but there is a movie series that I actually have never watched in my life, but I have seen clips here and there on YouTube. Now, just let me ask you a question. How many of you are familiar with Rocky Balboa or have heard the name? Okay, some of you have Rocky Balboa. He starred, this character is actually starred by Sylvester Stallone. Uh, Rocky is actually a fictional character who is featured as a boxer and who eventually becomes a heavyweight champion. In the, in the final installment of the movie series back in 2006, uh, Rocky had a conversation with his now grown-up son who was struggling with life and with success. And so this conversation that they had has been recognized as the most inspiring and motivational speech as Rocky speaks directly to his son about reality. Now, I cannot voice Sylvester Stallone because he has a really interesting accent, but I'll do my best to just read what he said to his son. So this is what he said. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are. It will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You know, you, me, or nobody's gonna hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. 
but you're gonna be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you wanna be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. I'm always gonna love you no matter what. No matter what happens, you're my son and you're my blood. You're the best thing in my life, but until you start believing in yourself, you ain't gonna have a life. Well, I'm not necessarily a big fan of motivational speech per se because it's often very man-centered, uh, but I think the speech does capture some principles regarding the Christian life. You see, this speech can certainly apply to the adversity and the persecution that Christians can face in life. The Apostle Paul once said to his protege, Timothy, that those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, which includes being faithful to Jesus Christ, no matter the cost, even unto death. See, Jesus never promised that being a Christian will be an easy life. He never promised that we won't face trials and tribulations in this world. In fact, he did say we will face trials in this world, but he also reassures us with this, but I have overcome the world. And so we are not to set our hope and faith in ourselves, nor in our abilities, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when, when you do face adversity in life, as a Christian, or when life hits you really hard, and maybe it has hit you really hard this past week, whatever that may be, how will you keep moving forward? And we recall last week that Peter and John were arrested and examined by the Jewish council for two things. They, were healed, they healed a lame man, and second of all, they were teaching about Jesus Christ, which specifically uh, includes the resurrection of Jesus. And we have learned that they displayed the godly characteristics of a faithful witness. And so the Jewish council, they decided to release them and warn them not to speak about the name of Jesus Christ ever again. And the apostles responded by telling them essentially that they must be faithful and obedient to God rather than listening to men. And so we come to the passage that we'll be looking at. This occurred immediately after the threat and the examination. Luke says in verse 23, immediately when they were released, meaning that they were set free from the control, from the persecution, from the arrest and the interrogation of the Sanhedrin, which is also known as the Jewish council. Now try to imagine, if you were in their shoes, try to imagine what it was like. I can imagine that the reaction and the feeling that one may have after such an uncomfortable and frightening experience. You see, I can imagine that the aftermath would have been shocking. It would have been paralyzing. It would have been traumatizing. And where could they gone, have gone afterwards? They could have just gone home and to their families and returned to their old life as fishermen. They could have just locked their doors and hid in their homes in fear of further persecution. They could have just gone to a counselor if they had one back in the ancient world. 
But that's not how Peter and John responded to their persecution. Nor is this how the early church responded when they heard their report about the adversity that they faced. Rather, what we will learn in this text is perhaps quite astonishing. It is heavenly. It is the kind of response that is not led by the flesh, but by the Spirit of God and a deep devotion and love for the Lord. And from this passage, I think there are three ways for Christians to respond to adversity. And all these responses may not be our natural inclination. It may not be our natural response to adversity. But however, as Christians, we do need divine revelation. We need God's word to guide us and to lead us to respond not only in the right way, but in the Christian way. And so, here are some of the lessons we can learn from this passage. We respond to adversity by first meeting with Christians. We respond to adversity by meeting with Christians. And that's precisely what Peter and John did. When they were released from the arrest, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. It's the warning and threat given in Acts 4.17. They're instructed not to speak. They're instructed not to teach and proclaim Jesus Christ. Now, I find it fascinating that different translations of the Bible will capture the Church of Jesus Christ in various ways. In, in my ESV, English Standard Version, it says they went to their friends, but other translations would say they went to their own companions, to their own company, uh, to, their, to other believers, or they went back to their own people. See, after the apostles were released, they went back to the Christians. They prioritized their fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And these Christians were pretty much the same people that the apostles prayed with back in chapter 1. These Christians could also uh, be included as those who were saved on the day of Pentecost. And so when the Christians heard the report given by the apostle Peter and John, immediately notice that they worship God by lifting their voices together to God and they prayed. See, in the Greek, it literally says that they lifted their voices with one mind. They were like-minded. See, this word, out of the 11 times used in the New Testament, is used almost exclusively in the book of Acts, with the exception of Romans chapter 15. It, it speaks of being together. It speaks of being of one accord. It speaks of being united. Even though they just experience antagonism, there remains unity in a church. There remains one purpose in the early church. Of course, later on in, in the history of the church, when the church passed their, what you would call the honeymoon, the honeymoon phase, and experienced some turmoil in the church, the apostle Paul told the Philippians to complete his joy by being of the same mind. Now, before we move forward, I cannot overemphasize this enough but your fellowship with other brothers and sisters, your fellowship with other believers can be so invaluable. God designed the church as a means, as a means of grace for your sanctification. I remember someone made an interesting point in the illustration. You see, as a Christian, you are a soldier of Christ. Did you know that? 
You are a soldier of Christ. That is described in, back in Ephesians chapter 6 regarding putting on the whole armor of God. You see, many years ago, outside our church, or the foyer, there was a sign put up on top of the entrance door. Some of you may remember this sign. Uh, and as you're ex- exiting the church, you'll be reminded by the sign which says, you are entering into the mission field. And as a soldier, as you go out later after the service, you actually are going into the mission field. And the thing about going into the mission field is that you go through your week and you face the ups and downs of life. And sometimes you may be badly wounded and injured. I don't mean physically, but mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. And it's easy to face discouragement and be disheartened. And then comes Sunday, or whenever you meet with other Christians. And so on Sunday, is where, as we're doing this right now in the Lord's Day, meeting together to worship God, is where we as brothers and sisters can come along, come together and encourage each other and exhort each other in our walk with Christ. It, it should be the place. It should be the place where you can report your week to some Christians and they can walk alongside you and pray for you. You see, the church can be the means of grace of finding comfort and hope as you face another week, as you are patched up, so to speak, patched up from your wounds, patched up from your injuries, with the scriptures, with prayer, with fellowship, with encouragement from brothers and sisters, and a reminder of God's love revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you are facing some sort of trouble or adversity, then I strongly encourage you to go to church. What I mean by that is meet with Christians. Meet with other believers because the church is not a building. It is the gathering of God's people. Meet with other Christians. Allow other believers to be a part of your life so that you can be spiritually strengthened in your walk with Christ. And so that's the first lesson we can learn. When you face adversity, you can respond by meeting with other Christians. The second lesson is this. We respond to adversity by praying together with the church, praying together with other Christians. That you, you notice that's what the church did from, from verses 24 to 30. The church prayed together. They prayed together back in chapter 1, verse 14. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers in Acts chapter 4, chapter 2, verse 42. And despite adversity, that didn't stop them from praying. But I wonder if we can ask ourselves this morning, despite adversity in our lives, will it stop contemporary churches in the 21st century from praying? See, the early church began their prayer but they did not immediately ask God for something. Do you notice that? They did not immediately ask God for something in this prayer. You see, that's what many Christians usually do, and I'm not saying that there's something inherently wrong with that, about starting your prayer with petitioning, because many of the Psalms do that. They begin their prayers with a petition, 
But however, I do want us to reflect on this. See, constantly starting your prayer by asking for, for something, it may reveal something about yourself. It may reveal the intention and motivation of your own heart before the Lord. Because so often we may treat God as like a genie, that we can just ask God for something. But here's the thing. God is God and you are not. And we are to approach God with reverence, with fear. Do you know who you are? Do you know yourself as you sit and stand before the Lord in prayer? And as we just did the Lord's Prayer during the service, Jesus taught us to pray by acknowledging who our God is first, right? Hallowed be your name. And so the church here, they began their prayer by acknowledging the character of God, by, by addressing God as sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You see, what they just experienced is this. They experienced the threat of human rulers. But here, the church recognized and acknowledged that God is sovereign over the situation. He's the master over the human institutions. And when contrasted with the power of God, the human rulers are just like ants who will be overcome by the Lord. This is the God whom the, Lord, whom the church pray for to. He's their master. He's their Lord. He's their sovereign Lord. And when you put that into perspective, you should find the truth of God's character to be rather comforting. See, they remember that this God whom they're worshiping and praying to is the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is in them. You see, this verse, the church, uh, where that, that the church was praying to, to God for, this line here is actually alluding back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, when, it talked, when, the church, when Moses talked about the, the Sabbath. See, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. This type of language reflects the creation account of Genesis 1. What, so what is this teaching us? Is teaching us that not only God is sovereign Lord, but he's also the maker of heaven and earth. He's the creator of heaven and earth and everything. And everything that God does is meant to glorify himself and accomplish his sovereign purposes. And furthermore, they prayed to the Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then they quoted Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Now, I just want to highlight this very briefly in verse 23. Psalm 2 doesn't explicitly tell us the composer of this psalm, if you turn back to Psalm 2. This church, however, prayed and they understood by explaining to us that it was King David who wrote the psalm. Yet at the same time, it's very subtle here in verse 25. Notice very closely that it was the Holy Spirit who ultimately spoke those words. So the church prayed to the Lord, who spoke through David by the Holy Spirit. And this speaks much of the doctrine of divine inspiration of Scripture. Ultimately, although some of God's people did write the Scriptures, 
they were, they were human authors, but it was God who is ultimately the author of the Bible because he spoke through the writers. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 to 21 says, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture come from, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, we'll look at Psalm 2 now. And Psalm 2 dominates much of the content of this prayer. James Montgomery Boyce, he once said this, and I quote, when God's people worship God, they always do two things. First, they pray, and second, they reflect the scriptures. Prayer is our talking to God. The scriptures are God's talking to us, and, to, and the two always go together. You pray in the right way when you pray scripturally, and you study the scriptures in the right way when you st study it prayerfully. And this is what the church was doing. They had been reflecting on the scriptures. And now as they began to pray, the scriptures rose up in them. And they found themselves talking to God in God's own words. End quote. You see, the church here remembers the scriptures in their prayer. And not only did they remember it, but they learned to apply Psalm 2 to their circumstance and to Jesus Christ. You see, before the resurrection of Jesus, we must remember that the disciples did not understand the scripture fully and how it pointed to Christ. Most likely, you remember after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus had to teach his disciples from the scriptures. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see, this passage from Luke chapter 24 shows us that what is written in the Psalm must be fulfilled by Christ. And Jesus did fulfill Psalm chapter 2. And so in case... If, in case you're not familiar, I do want to invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 2 right now. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. And allow me to read the entire chapter so that we can grasp the entire context of the psalm. So Psalm chapter 2, it says this, Why do the nations rage? and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now, this psalm, in the original context, speaks of the Gentile kings revolting against the Davidic king, and the Lord sees that the revolt is nothing but vainless pursuit, because God is not surprised nor dismayed by such rebellion. God will fulfill His promise that the line of David. Will be sure forever, and that the Messiah will come from David, and that he will come from the tribe of Judah, and that he will fulfill the promise of Abraham. Therefore, the psalmist advises the Gentile rulers not to reject, not to revolt against the Davidic king, for he is not just simply another human king, but the king whom God anointed. And appointed, and so they are to repent and to turn and serve this king. Now, going back to Acts four, knowing the original context of Psalm two in the Old Testament, how did the church understand the psalm as it relates to their situation? In verse twenty-seven, the Gentiles here are referring to Herod and Pontius Pilate, who were the Gentile rulers and the kings. They are guilty of going up against the Messiah. However the, however, the irony here is that Peter is also applying the, the Gentiles to the peoples of Israel, that is, the Jews living in Jerusalem, because the Jews, remember, the Jewish rulers, also went up against the Messianic King. And Jesus Christ, He is the fulfillment of Psalm two, because He is the Messianic King. He is the Christ. He is the Lord's Anointed One. He is the Lord's Servant. And the point is that when all these people, the rulers of the earth, when they are gathered together against Jesus Christ, their attacks were ultimately doomed to failure. Of course, they did murder and crucify their Lord, Messiah, Jesus Christ. However, God thwarted their plans by raising Jesus up from the dead, and has highly exalted Him in heaven. Of course, the church did not recite the entire psalm, but Psalm chapter two, verse four tells us God's response to these rulers. He is sitting in heaven. He is laughing at their plans, and he is mocking them, because he promised that he will forever establish David's throne by setting his messianic king in Zion. But notice, verse twenty-eight. Notice the purpose of gathering together against Jesus. It states that they have gathered against Christ, not to do whatever their hand had planned, but to do whatever your hand and your plan—that is, God's hand and God's plan—had predestined to take place. Now, this verse gets into, gets into the question of God's decree and predestination and foreordination. 
although they went up against the Messiah, their activity ultimately fulfilled a plan that which God predestined to take place. See, they killed Jesus Christ, but it did not upset God's plan of salvation. Rather, it fulfilled God's plan all along. The opponents of Jesus were not were just doing what the scriptures predicted and prophesied what happened because God decreed it to happen, predestined it to happen. And Jesus understood this very clearly. Back in John chapter 19, when Jesus was arrested, uh, he was standing before Pilate. And Pilate said to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? That's what Pilate said. But here's what Jesus said to Pilate. You have no authority over me at all. You have no authority to even crucify me at all unless it had been given you from above. Pilate did not have the ultimate authority. His authority is just simply a delegated authority given by God. One pastor noted this and he says, and I quote, Jesus' statement here indicates that even the most heinous acts of wickedness cannot circumvent the sovereignty of God. Pilate had no real control, yet still stood as a responsible moral agent for his actions. And when confronted with opposition and evil, Jesus often found solace in the sovereignty of his Father. End quote. Now, when you hear the word predestination and foreignation, some of you may have a knee-jerk reaction towards those words because this does bring up the question of, you know, what about free will? Well, what about choices? I do prefer the term human responsibility. See, if God is sovereign and has decreed the Gentile rulers to fulfill his plan, then does that mean they do not have a real choice to make? In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.R. Packer corrects those who feel like they have to pick one over the other because they find these truths, sovereignty of God and human responsibility to be irreconcilable. And Packer says this, and I quote, the false dichotomies come from error in the church. That is the intruding of rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than men and a consequent subjecting of scripture to the supposed demands of human logic, end quote. Now, I'll be the first to confess that I struggle with this. Christians often struggle to understand sovereignty of God and human responsibility because they, they try to make sense of these true truths from the human perspective of human logic and rationality. However, they are in positions in Scripture. They are taught in Scripture. They are evident everywhere in Scripture. They are, but how do you make sense of them? Well, I'll just say this. They are paradoxical truths. Or they are, I will put it this way. They are parallel truths that it's hard to see them crisscross each other. And when you try to crisscross them each other, when you see them intersect, 
That's going to blow your brain out because it's hard to understand. But rather, they are parallel truths that is flow through the scriptures. You see, the Gentile rulers and the Jewish council, they did have a real choice. They did make the decision to reject Jesus Christ as their king. And the Lord holds the rulers responsible for gathering together against Jesus. Yet at the same time, all at the same time, God was meticulously sovereign over those events because he predestined them to take place. And so, Packer challenges us to spawn in this way. And I quote, Accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. And I will just put, learn to live with a healthy tension. Put down the semblance of contradiction to the deficiency of your own understanding. Think of the two principles as not rival alternatives, but in some way that at present, at this moment, you do not grasp, but look at them as complementary to each other." End quote. Because they're taught in the Bible. Both truths, both sovereignty of God, yes, and human responsibility, they're all taught in the scriptures. And we need to accept them and not say, and not reject one over the other just because it doesn't make sense. And the early Christians, they understood this truth to be true. And we should adhere to both of these truths as taught in the Bible. And now, after reciting Psalm 2 and understanding it in the context of Christ, the church now petitions God to do something in verses 29 to 30. Now, they're specifically petitioning the Lord. You notice at the beginning of verse 29, the Lord. And in the Greek, it's actually called kurios. And this word is often attributed to Jesus Christ. So I think, perhaps, that the church was currently praying to Jesus Christ, who was also the sovereign Lord. Now, before examining what they actually pray for, we should notice what they did not ask God for. They didn't pray against those who persecuted them, like the like the uh, imprecatory prayers that you see in the book of Psalms. In other words, they did not call down God's judgment upon the Jewish councils for persecuting them and telling them not to preach about Christ. They didn't pray that persecution would never happen to them again. They did not pray for relief from the opposition. See, even if the church experienced persecution, they did not ask God that it will hurt less. And so what did they pray for? They asked God first to look upon their threats and behold their threats. And second, they asked God to grant them the ability to continue to speak his word with all boldness. And this prayer is an act of civil disobedience. The early church was seeking to be devoted and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ above the states. And while the church lived out in boldness for Christ's sake and in proclaiming the gospel, they were asking God to reveal himself in his visible activity and his visible ability to heal and to do these signs and miracles with their ministry. And so we have learned 
that the church responded by, to adversity by praying together with other Christians. They, meet, they met with other Christians and they prayed together with other Christians. And now we come to the third and final point. We respond to adversity by continuing to be faithful to the Lord. Continue to be faithful to the Lord. And that's what happened. That's what happened after their prayer meeting. And there are three things that actually happened in their prayer meeting. First, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. It was shaken. Now, this should remind us of a similar event in Acts 2-2, where suddenly there was a, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Uh, I think this symbolizes... This probably symbolizes the presence of God in the way he responded to their prayer. And mind you, just so you know, this was an exceptional event. And we should not always expect God to respond to us in this way after praying because we don't always see this happening in the rest of the Bible. And if, for those of you who are in a prayer meeting at 8.30, if that happens, let me know, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> but this basically means that God approves and he answers their prayers. And I think it's probably because the church acknowledged first the character of God and that their prayers was saturated with Christ-centered understanding of scripture and that it was not a selfish prayer, but it was a prayer that is willing to be obedient to Christ. So that's the first thing that happened. And second of all, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not talking about, a, this is not describing a second Pentecost like the one we saw in Acts 2. This is, not a, this is not a second Pentecost because many of the trusted commentaries that I've, that I've read would say the same thing. Rather, what this means is that there was a fresh renewal, a fresh filling, a fresh renewed awareness of the Spirit's power and presence in their life and in their witnessing. And the filling of the Holy Spirit is what enabled the Christian community to continue the Great Commission, that is, to go out to, to the world and to make disciples. And third, therefore, they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Since they have experienced a fresh filling of the Spirit, they will now continue to proclaim the Word and testify, and to testify about Jesus, about His death, about His resurrection. And really, when you, when you look at this verse, in verse 31, although we, they were asking God to give them boldness to continue to preach the Word, how did God answer their prayer? Well, these, these, these folks, the Christians here, they pretty much answered their own prayer. God gave them the ability, God filled them with the Holy Spirit, and now they went out to go and proclaim the word. And so as we slowly wrap up this message, let me return to the question that I asked in the beginning of my message. When you do face adversity in life as a Christian, how will you keep moving forward? How would you respond? Is it natural for you to respond to adversity the way that the early church responded? And since we 
talked about boldness a couple of times in the message. I just want to highlight that theme a little bit more in our application. Do you lack boldness in your Christian life? And do you desire to be more bold? Now, some of you may say, well, I have a different personality. I'm not as bold as some people are. Uh, of course, I acknowledge that all of us have different personalities and maybe less bold and risk takers than others. That's, that's true. But I will say this. Boldness for Christ is actually not a matter of personality. Rather, if, if, actually, remember, the apostles, they weren't bold for Christ before his ascension. They weren't bold. I mean, Peter, he sort of had a boldness, but it was pretentious boldness. Because he said, yeah, I'll go with you to die, but then when the persecution happened, he just he became a coward. And so, how can we be bold? How did the early church become bold? They needed the Holy Spirit to empower them. They needed the Spirit of God to empower them to do the work and will of God. It is a supernatural type of boldness that is filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you remember the story of Joshua, were the Israelites bold? before they conquered the land of Canaan. I don't know if they were, but the words of God to his people through Joshua is still relevant for us today. You remember Joshua chapter 1, verse 9? Perhaps a, a most fam- one of the most famous verses that you may have memorized. God said to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong. Be courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed. Why? Why is God saying that to the Israelites? And why is God saying that to you this morning? For the Lord, your God is with you wherever you go. Why are we to be not why are we not to be frightened? Why are we not to be dismayed? Why are we to be bold? Why are we to be courageous? Because God is with you. That's it. God is with you. Do you believe that this morning? And so I ask again, do you desire to be bold for Christ? And if not, then what is the other option that you're falling into? It could be fear, as is natural in our flesh, to fall into our sinful fears, as I talked about many weeks ago. It could be apathy, not caring. It could be complacency and trying to seek comfort as much as possible in this life. And it could be worries. It could be anxiety. It could be many other things. But it takes the Spirit of God to move you to be dependent upon Him, doesn't it? It does. You need Him. Lacking in boldness and choosing not to be bold is the decision not to live like the Christians in the book of Acts. And I admit, I'll be the first to admit that I'm not always as bold, as courageous as I should be. And I'm sure all of us have failed in this area of being bold for Christ at some point in our life, and maybe even right now. But when we learn from the scriptures, 
we learn from the scriptures, from the Christians here, that not only were they empowered by the Holy Spirit, but they were filled with conviction and zeal for Christ because of all that Jesus Christ has done for them through his death and resurrection. Like Joshua, we need to remember that the Lord is with us when we faithfully do whatever he has told us to do. See, how could God not be with us when he instructs us in his word to live for him? Would God just tell you to do something and he just ditches you and leaves you alone? No. When we faithfully live for Christ, he will be with us wherever we go and he will bless us. So perhaps we need to come humbly before the Lord and confess our weaknesses. Perhaps confess any fear and confess anything that will hinder us from living for him alone. And perhaps the adversity in life, it may have set you back. It may have set you back in your love and obedience to Christ. And so maybe I invite you, I invite you to pray like this. Whatever it takes, Lord, decrease the hold that unbelieving fear has over me and increase my boldness to declare the gospel to everyone you put in my path. Decrease my fear and increase my boldness. Let's do that this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we, we struggle in this life because this life that we live it's challenging, it's hard. And when we stumble, when we fail, Lord, we need your grace. We need your love, we need your reminder. In your word that, that God, you're with us. Sometimes, God, we feel like you've abandoned us, but you never abandoned us. So we confess that, Lord, we confess our sins before you. But we know and have assurance that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, he died for our sins and he, that he rose again on the third day and he's now ascended into heaven, having authority over heaven and, heaven and earth. And because he is sovereign, Lord, that should give us comfort and hope in this life to live for you and to be faithful and to be obedient to you no matter the cost. Lord, help us, help us, Lord. Help us to repent of any un, ungodly thoughts about you. Help us repent of any sins in our life where, where we have fallen. And for those who are struggling with life, I pray that this, this message would reassure them and comfort them and that they would be able to respond in the way that these Christians responded. So God, please help us. We need you. We're dependent upon you. In your name I pray. Amen.